Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr. And I'm Caitlin Andrzejczyk. And this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Thank you for downloading this podcast, a free service of the Endocrine Society. The Society's latest clinical practice guideline, titled Hypothalamic Pituitary Growth Disorders in Survivors of Childhood Cancer, appears in the August 2018 issue of the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. Six medical experts and a methodologist came together as a committee to research and write this guideline. We speak with the committee chair, Charles Sklar, director of the long-term follow-up program at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. We talk about this guideline, the risk of childhood cancer survivors suffering from severe endocrine disorders, and key recommendations for clinical care practitioners. Also, Caitlin will tell us about the latest research update, and she will ask our trivia question. Stay tuned. Because today's interview covers the Endocrine Society's most recent clinical practice guideline on hypothalamic pituitary and growth disorders in survivors of childhood cancer, I want to tell you about the Endocrine Society's thematic issue on pediatric endocrinology. Go to www.endocrine.org podcast to find this episode and click on the link there. In this curated collection, we include clinical articles on sex-based differences in fetal skeletal development, a report on menstrual dysfunction in girls with type 2 diabetes, a perspective on the ethical issues specific to pediatric patients with differences of sex development, and much more. Basic science articles include an investigation of hepatic insulin signaling in premature baboons, analysis of differential effects of corticosterone exposure between adults and adolescent mice, a description of how rat offspring development is affected by parental alcohol consumption, and others. There are several reviews included in this collection, with two focusing on the influence of endocrine-disrupting chemicals on the developmental origins of liver disease and the incidence of hypertriglyceridemia in diabetes mellitus, highlighting the critical need for increased research data in children and adolescents. All of the articles in this collection are free to download. Today's question comes straight from the guideline itself. What percentage of childhood cancer survivors go on to develop at least one endocrinopathy over the course of their lifetime? I will have the answer for you after the interview. Now, our conversation with Charles Sklar from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. We spoke with him on the telephone. It seems the good news is that in recent years, we've seen improvements in childhood cancer survival rates. However, survivors do seem to be at increased risk for a wide range of serious health conditions, including disorders of the endocrine system. How much of an increased risk are we seeing? Well, we know that overall, cancer survivors who are followed through to the fourth or fifth decade of life have about a 50% chance of developing an endocrinopathy over their lifetime. So it's an extremely high risk compared to the general population. It's important to add that some subsets of cancer survivors, like brain tumor survivors uh, in particular, are at extremely high risk for endocrinopathies, whereas other disorders, depending on the treatments, are at much less risk. But overall, the risk is about 50%. Why is the risk so high? Well, most of the endocrinopathies that develop in cancer survivors 
are the late effects of specific treatments, the most significant, important treatments that are associated with endocrinopathies are radiation. So radiation to key endocrine organs like the hypothalamus and the pituitary, the thyroid, and the gonads place patients at extremely high risk for developing endocrine disorders over time. In addition, patients who receive surgery for tumors in the hypothalamic pituitary region are also at significant risk. The difference is, is that patients that have tumors or undergo surgery in the hypothalamic pituitary region are most likely to develop endocrinopathies in the short-term acute setting, whereas people who receive radiation therapy may not develop an endocrinopathy for decades after treatment is completed. So the primary risk factor for late endocrine abnormalities in childhood cancer survivors is related to the kind of treatments that they receive. What are some of the disorders or conditions that might come up? The guidelines are specifically targeted to growth problems and abnormalities of the anterior pituitary. Those are extremely common, but they are not the only endocrinopathies. In addition to those two big groupings, it is not uncommon for patients to develop primary hypothyroidism. We see an increased risk of hyperthyroidism, thyroid neoplasms, including malignant and benign thyroid tumors. And the other big group are patients that develop primary gonadal failure, so ovarian failure, premature menopause in females, and primarily male infertility, although one can also see latex cell or testosterone deficiency in male survivors, although that is a relatively uncommon late effect. Throughout the guideline, I noticed a theme that kept coming up over and over again throughout the guideline was this notion of lifelong surveillance. Can you speak mm -hmm. to why that is so important? When you're talking specifically about radiation-induced hypothalamic pituitary abnormalities, it's very important to appreciate that endocrinopathies in general, but hypothalamic pituitary abnormalities in specific that develop after radiation are in general both dose and time dependent. So that means that the longer the interval between the treatment and the follow-up, the greater the risk. So radiation-induced abnormalities tend to develop with a relatively long latency period. It can be as short as 6 to 12 months, but it can be as long as 20 to 30 years. And so because of this delayed development of radiation-induced abnormalities, surveillance over an entire lifetime is extremely important in patients that are at risk. And so, for instance, somebody who shows up to your office five or ten years after a particular exposure and you test for that abnormality, and you don't find the problem, that doesn't mean that the patient doesn't remain at risk. And because that risk continues over the lifetime, it's extremely important that those patients be periodically retested 
for problems for which they are at risk. So how do you propose that clinicians should approach the diagnosis and the treatment of these survivors of childhood cancer differently than other patients that they're looking at? The testing for these various endocrinopathies, for the most part, is identical to the testing, with a few exceptions. But by and large, the testing is exactly the same as one would utilize in a non-cancer population. The difference is the risk continues over a lifetime. So testing the patient and finding normal results does not mean that the patient is fine and that diagnosis no longer needs to be done. The critical difference is the need for probably annual, although that's not completely clear, but one needs to do regular, continued, lifelong surveillance for patients whose previous treatment puts them at risk. Uh, And I think that's the biggest difference is the appreciation for the fact that problems may not emerge for decades after specific exposures. My understanding is childhood cancer is relatively rare. And then you add on top of that, that with this specific patient group, you might find results that aren't necessarily negative. So it begs the question, how aware are clinicians about the need to approach these patients differently than normal ones so that these things don't float by under the radar? Yes, that's a critical issue, and it's one that we struggle with. As you might imagine, and not unexpectedly, most endocrinologists, particularly endocrinologists who take care primarily of adults, are generally not very aware of these issues, and they're unlikely to see large numbers of cancer survivors in their own practice. So as a result, when these patients do get to adult endocrine practitioners in particular, they're often told, I screened you for thyroid problems, I screened you for pituitary problems, everything is fine, so you really don't need to come back and see me any longer because you don't. You know, you were treated 20 years ago and everything seems fine. And that unfortunately happens fairly often. And so we know for certain that many of the endocrine problems that develop in adulthood after treatment in childhood go undiagnosed and untreated. And that obviously can have very significant consequences, both in terms of morbidity and even for mortality. Undiagnosed ACTH deficiency, for instance, can be a life-threatening problem if it's unrecognized and untreated, particularly during uh, a medical stressful event like surgery. So, yes, unfortunately, the awareness about this is relatively low, and that, of course, is one of the big reasons for the development of these guidelines is to try to reinforce the importance of lifelong surveillance and to improve people's knowledge and understanding about the evolution of endocrinopathies after cancer therapy, even during childhood, when one is taking care of an adult survivor. So Dr. Sklar, I want to change the focus just a little bit and talk about the recommendations in the guideline. They're all evidence-based, meaning that you and your colleagues looked at a tremendous number of studies to put this together. In your review of that literature, did you identify any gaps in our knowledge? Are there any areas where we might need more studies? 
Yes, unfortunately, um, there are major gaps. On the one hand, we do have a lot of observational studies. We do have, I think, a very good understanding of the relationship between particular treatments like radiation to the brain or radiation to the thyroid and the development of specific endocrinopathies. We still don't understand very well how frequently patients should be tested. We still don't understand the risks and benefits of things like growth hormone replacement therapy in adult survivors who develop growth hormone deficiency later in life. We don't have good information and good treatments for patients that develop extreme short stature as a result of non-endocrine treatments, like patients who are very short because they've had their spines radiated at a young age, but they don't have any associated endocrinopathies. Right now, there are no known treatments for that population. There are a whole host of other issues with some of the newer therapies that are available, like tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We know that those drugs can cause patients to have very poor linear growth. We don't understand completely the basis for that, and we don't yet have a good understanding of what treatments are both safe and efficacious in those settings. So there's a great deal that we understand, but there's a great deal that we still need to learn moving forward. And do you have any insights for the patient who has survived childhood cancer? Are there any specific conversations that they should be having with their doctor? My entire medical practice is focused on cancer survivors, and we spend a tremendous amount of time and effort educating families, both parents and the survivors, about their risks overall. We try to make them understand how, even though the testing for particular problems come back normal now, that's no guarantee that they won't develop a problem over time. We do try to educate them about the need to see specialists as they age, and we do try to make them appreciate that they may need to advocate for their own care. So for instance, we do make them aware of the fact that they may see a specialist who's not familiar with the treatments that they received and may not be familiar with the fact that they need ongoing testing, even though testing done a year or two before were normal. You know, that's asking a great deal of patients. We're putting much of the burden on them to advocate moving forward, but that can be very difficult and very daunting. And I think there are not very many patients who have the fortitude and the confidence to question their doctor who says, the testing we did today is fine, it's normal, you don't have any problems, so you don't even need to come back to see me any longer. That's a really difficult thing to deal with. But it is the conversations that we do have with our patients, and we do try to help them understand ways that they can negotiate the system moving forward. But it's a very big problem, and it's something that adult survivors of childhood cancer throughout the world face in terms of getting appropriate knowledgeable, uh, and good follow-up care as they age out of pediatrics. It's a huge public health issue. So you cover a lot of grounds in the guideline. Are there any key recommendations or perhaps closing thoughts that you'd like to highlight for the clinician? Well, I guess one of the things that I would like to uh, emphasize is that 
Um, these guidelines were not meant to be all-inclusive. They cover two big areas, that is growth and hypothalamic pituitary disorders, but there are other important, relatively common endocrinopathies that these patients also face that need to be addressed. And hopefully, in future guidelines, we will be able to um, to cover and address those issues moving forward. So this is one piece of a very large pie, but it's not the whole pie. It's just one big chunk. And I guess the other thing I would emphasize is that these patients frequently have multiple medical problems in addition to the endocrinopathies. And when you care for these patients and treat their endocrine disorders, you need to be aware and cognizant of any other associated chronic medical diseases, whether they have them, whether they're at risk for them, and how they would interact or interplay with the treatment for endocrinopathies um, and take those into account when counseling and uh, treating patients. It's been great speaking with Dr. Sklar. Thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Really appreciate your having me. Earlier in this episode, for our trivia question, I asked, what percentage of childhood cancer survivors go on to develop endocrinopathies? If you have read the new clinical practice guideline, you will undoubtedly know this already. But I have to admit that I was shocked to learn that recent data indicates that 40 to 50% of survivors will go on to develop some endocrinopathy during their lives. It is fortunate that there are such remarkable improvements to the treatment and care of childhood cancers. But according to this data, and from our conversation with Dr. Sklar, patients, their families, and their doctors need to know about the importance of lifelong surveillance. And that is all for this episode. Thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. To learn more, visit www.endocrine.org podcast. There, you can find this episode and links to the clinical practice guideline and to the pediatric endocrinology thematic issue Caitlin talked about earlier. Our last episode was about preconception health and counseling, and Caitlin asked for you to let us know what you thought men who were interested in becoming fathers could do before conception for their own health and for the health of their future children. Email us at podcast at endocrine.org to let us know your thoughts. We will read highlights in a future episode. You can subscribe to Endocrine News Podcasts on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.